Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Amen. He is so faithful. Amen. We're appreciative to him today. Philippians chapter number two. And I'm going to read a couple, a few verses of scripture, I might say. A few verses of scripture. The Bible says in verse number one. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ. If any comfort of love. If any fellowship of the spirit. If any bowels and mercies. Fulfill ye my joy, Paul says, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man he humbled himself and became obedient unto death even the death of the cross this morning I want to talk to you about Christ minded that's my subject matter Christ minded minded Christ minded amen Lord we need you Jesus today I pray O Lord God that you're able Lord to anoint and you're able Lord to touch every word that is spoken God as we share from the word of the Lord God for it is a pattern it is a prescription Lord for life God we glean so many good and precious Lord things ideas concepts Lord God, ways, Lord, to conduct ourselves from the scriptures. I pray, God, help us not be hearers only, but doers also, Lord, of the word of God today. And will not fail to thank you in the name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen and amen. Everybody say amen. You may be seated this morning in Jesus' name. Paul has made it his his mission and his responsibility up to the verses that I've read in your hearing this morning. He's made it his purpose and responsibility uh, to push the gospel forward in his time, whether he's in prison or not. He's made many sweeping comments about pushing the gospel forward, even in the face of adversity. It does not matter. But now he explains that the success in doing so is by the type of connections that we keep with the Lord. That is first and foremost predominant and important. The success of pushing the gospel forward is tethered to the relationships that we keep with the Lord. But he also makes a connection that it is us being like-minded then with one another. How the Lord treats and interacts and how we would desire, amen, and should be the uh, epitome of a relationship with him that we should also like-minded, be like-minded with one another, with our relationship with one another. So what he is conveying is just as important as having a good rapport with the Lord is also having a good rapport or a good bond with one another, right? Uh, Remember, Paul said in verse 27 of the first chapter, he said, stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Again, I made note of that whenever we studied it, that we are not in competition with one another. We're not to strive against one another, but we are to strive together because uh, of sorts, we are colleagues, Of sorts, we are Christians and we are trying and striving toward a common goal. We're pressing toward that mark, as the apostle said, of of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And so Paul tells them that the things we find, we can find in Christ. This this one-mindedness, this spirit, this steadfastness. And then he tells us of the things that we find, like the comfort and love and, and the fellowship of the spirit. He tells us them that he wants us to practice those things in our lives toward one another 
So he says you can find the comfort of love in Christ and you can find the fellowship of the Spirit in Christ and, and you can have uh, bowels, which would be the emotions and, and mercies, you know, in Christ. But I want you to take those very same things and live them out in community with one another. So what Paul is saying, and, and this is sometimes, I think, difficult to live, Paul is saying he doesn't want us just to be a beneficiary of those things. He also wants us to be a benefactor. He doesn't want us just to be on the receiving end, but he wants us to be on the giving end of those things because it's very easy sometimes uh, for the blessings and the goodnesses of God to flow to us but not allow it to flow through us, right? We become a dam. We just allow it all to bank up and build up because it's resourceful and it's good for us and for our purposes, but there's somebody downstream that needs some of that too. All right, so to speak. And so he says we, we serve best when we are like-minded in that respect. And so he presents them in verses beyond verse number five, like six to nine. He presents then Christ Jesus as the ultimate example on how to do that, right? He gives us an example in Christ of how he is the greatest example on how to get that accomplished. And so we find then a principle in the life of Christ of his exaltation that happened, and we'll get to those here in a little bit, the exaltation of Christ that happened, but before he was exalted, all right, and he had given a name above every name, he went through an act of humility, which we don't, we don't really reconcile that in our mind, that on the backside of humility is exaltation, but it's biblical, and it was the core lesson of Jesus Christ in his life mission. And so Paul has already told us how much joy, if you'll remember, that the Philippian believers brought to him. He says, every mention of you in my prayers, I do so with joy. When I think of you, it brings joy to my, my heart, every remembrance. But he tells them in verse number four or verse number two here, chapter number two, he says, but here's how you can fulfill my joy. This is how you can complete my joy. Or in the Greek, it's basically, this is how you can feel full my joy. He said, and that's by offering to one another what you found in the Lord. Offer to one another what you've experienced in the Lord. He said, you'll make my joy full. You'll make it complete if you can do that. Amen. And so with that, with that, we see that Christ is the pattern that Paul then encourages the Philippian church to follow. You look at verse number one of chapter number two, and there's a lot of the, the little ifs, right? Ifs that are popping up here and there. If there be any consolation, if there be the comfort of love, if there be any fellowship. And usually we'll look at those as conditional statements. But it, it's, it, since these are things that are found in Christ, Paul's not saying, well, they might be and they might not be. He, he's not iffy about it, although that's the, the language as it's translated to us. But the ifs here, even in the old Greek language can be translated since. So it's not something that he's questionable about. He's confident of. These are facts that he knows to be true in Christ. He's saying, since there is comfort of love, and since there is consolation in the Lord, and since there is a fellowship of the Spirit and things of these matters, because all of these things exist, Paul says, since they exist, he says, complete my joy. Fulfill my joy, and here's how I want you to do it. Be like-minded. You Philippian believers, since you have found those things in Christ, be like-minded. Have the same love, is what he tells them in, in, in verse number three. Have the same love, all right, as you, the love that you found in, in the Lord. Have that same consolation. Have that same comfort of love. Have that same mercies that you found in the Lord. And he goes on and tells them, he says, and likewise, be, be of one accord and of one mind. Have that fellowship of the spirit that you found in Christ express that to one another in your everyday lives have fellowship of the spirit you'll remember uh, in the first chapter when we looked at the word fellowship it's more you know we talk about fellowship and it's talking and eating you know chicken and having mashed potatoes and gravy you know uh, but whenever we talk about fellowship that Paul speaks of in Philippians fellowship was participation fellowship was participation he says you you found the fellowship of the spirit or the participation of the spirit he says and that can result in you as members of the same body being in one accord 
as you of the same body, amen, being in unity with one another. Uh, the old example, and I've shared, I know this probably a gazillion times, so gazillion one, all right, but is that whenever an individual that would take a piano tuner and hit that tuning fork, and that maybe it sounds middle C, and if, if he tunes, let's say, a piano then to middle C, he can tune then other pianos to that same middle C and they are all collectively together when they will sound, if they were all to play the middle C, these different ones, I'm, I'm tuning that piano, this piano over here, this piano over there, they've all been tuned to the same thing. When they all play, there is this, there is this just, just no disjointedness, there is a similarity of sound. They've not been tuned to each other, but they've all been tuned to the same thing. And so it brings unity what I'm saying is we get unity among ourselves when we all find and fall in line and in tune with him. And so if I get, if I find the fellowship of the spirit here and brother Malone finds the fellowship of the spirit there, you know what that creates between he and I, it creates a unity because we've all set our tone to the same standard. Amen. And so the, the apostle saying, if, you'll, if you'll, you'll fall in love and get involved in that participation of the spirit, and if everybody does that, it's going to, if you will, oil all the gears and the wheels that go on in the church, and you'll find unity among yourselves when you stay in unity with him. Okay, I'm going to pause here for a moment because the breakdown is this. Trying to, trying to maintain unity between each of us when we're not in unity with him, you will frustrate yourself and you'll be on the eternal journey trying to get me to be unified with you and me to be unified with you if I'm not in unity with him. Because in doing so, I'm trying to tune myself to 70 different people. You hear me? But if we all can tune ourselves to him, we find in unity among us. Amen. Because in doing so, then I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to bend my life, you know, to equate your standard or your isms and schisms, your desires. But if I do it to him and you do it to him, then we have unity among one another. And so unity really comes from a spirit-controlled life. The Bible says keeping the unity of the spirit, keeping the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The unity belongs to the spirit. Amen. And so the more that we walk in the spirit, stay in touch and connected with the spirit. Paul says you can fulfill my joy and complete it because you'll have this one accord and oneness of mind among you. But then again, we live today in a dog eat dog world. Right. And so this expectation presents a little bit of a challenge. Amen to us, because we live in the society where each individual wants to get the edge ahead of the other. They want to get the gold medallion that's pinned to their lapel and they don't care if you get one or not. Yet the Apostle Paul wants the members of the Philippian church, he tells them, let each esteem or consider the other better than themselves. Well, that would go, that would go over like a lead balloon in our society. I want, you, I want you to esteem other people better than yourself. Whew. That's a tall order today. Because we're, the society is of the mindset of esteeming themselves better than everybody else. Now notice though, Paul didn't say, and this is what I want you to notice. Paul didn't say that each one they esteem better than, them, than themselves was necessarily better. Are you hearing me? Watch it here for a moment. But he was basically saying regardless of their status, regardless of the hierarchy of life in which they serve, he said, esteem them better than yourself. When a person used to, whenever a person was uh, self-absorbed and conceited, the old saying was, well, I guess it's not smoke unless it's coming out of your chimney. You know, maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't. But Paul was wanting to rearrange all that and tell them to do this. Why don't you blow smoke out of somebody else's chimney? Why don't you direct the wind into somebody else's sails? Because we live at times, sometimes at times, for trying to make ourselves appear, and I'm just talking about society, humanity here for a moment, trying to make ourselves appear more important or more meaningful among certain groups or organizations or society 
And Paul says, in essence, esteem another. Look, it doesn't say esteem another as you desire to be esteemed. You get that? That's a big one. He didn't say don't esteem somebody like you would like to be esteemed. He said esteem them better than you are esteemed. Brad Luminick says this. He says a rising tide lifts all the boats. The secret is when everyone esteems others, if we take the principle that Paul says and everybody esteems others better than themselves, guess what happens? We all rise together. Huh? If you had three people in the room and all three esteemed the other better than themselves, guess what? All rise. You don't have to worry about not being esteemed. Mm -hmm. When we collectively esteem one another. And so it's difficult. It's difficult to be of one accord. It's difficult to be of one mind. Particularly, Paul relates to us, it's difficult for these things to happen when there's strife and when there's vainglory. We cannot, he says, we can't do, we cannot order our lives according to strife or to vainglory. Now, he didn't say we would never have strife. Because we know that happens. We have strife with one another sometimes. He just says, he says, let nothing be done through strife. He didn't say that you'd never have strife. He said, but when there is strife, try not to do, react. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, it's probably not the best time to have the conversation with the other person when you're already aggravated at them in your spirit. Do nothing through strife. I'm not saying you're not going to get upset at somebody. I'm just saying there's just some things you don't do, shouldn't do when you are in a strife mode or mad. Abram, Abraham or Abram, he told Lot, he said that they should not let any strife, he said, come between them and their herdsmen, right? Because they were brethren is what the scripture says in Genesis 13. There was a, a de definitive family connection between Abraham and Lot, all right? And no doubt, at times, inevitably, there was going to be strained times that they would have strife. They were family, all right? All right, and so Paul must have known something a little similar in the church because he tells the disciples, or the disciples rather, showcase in the Gospels of Luke 22 and verse 24. I think it's up there. The Bible says this. This is, this is among the disciples now. And there was also a strife among them. Speaking of the disciples, which of them should be accounted the greatest, which that's pride, among them. So, you know, it's found among Abraham and Lot. Paul's saying it's found among the Philippians in the church day. We get even a little closer, and he's, the Scripture tells us it's among the 12 chosen ones, the 12 called ones of the Lord that's going to carry the gospel, you know, to the world, that they had strife and pride among them. Now, here's the wisdom of Solomon, letting Scripture interpret Scripture and help us out. Solomon said in Proverbs 20 and verse 3, it's an honor for a man to cease from strife. It's an honor. He also said, he that is of a proud heart stirreth up strife. Woo. Vainglory or pride stokes the fires of strife. Because here's the seedbed, listen, here's the seedbed of strife. Not wanting to give up your side of the argument. You know what not wanting to give up is? Pride. So when I want to hold my hill in my mountain and you want to hold your hill in your mountain and we're both prideful that our mountain is the right mountain, what's happening between us is strife because of our pride. <laughs> I'm right. Nothing else needs to be acknowledged about it. Because it takes humility to admit you're wrong. Or at least to say I'm sorry. It takes humility just to agree to disagree. But pride mounts a hill. Pride dies on the hill. And as long as pride remains, strife will continue. The, the, the problem will not be resolved until someone takes the road of humility. Amen. Amen. And so pride stirs up strife, then adding insult to injury. 
This is the, the, the Solomon here giving us wisdom in Proverbs. Proverbs 29, verse 22. He says, an angry man stirreth up strife. So here we go. Pride stirs up strife. And then when a strife happens, you get angry, then anger. We're on a downward spiral here. Your pride stirs it up, then your anger keeps it stirred. Huh? Pride's like the initial spoon. Then your anger comes along and just keep going. Amen. So the apostle Paul knew what he's talking about. He said, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, strife and pride. Why? He said, because you'll never get to one accord. You'll never have oneness of mind. Yeah, as long as you all are on your separate mounts. No wonder Paul paired then strife and vainglory together in verse 3 because one feeds off the other. One feeds off the other. Vainglory is defined as this, highly exaggerated self-view, empty glory or empty conceit, over-inflated self-image. Mm-hmm. No one start pointing fingers. I'm just, or we'll have strife. <laughs> Amen. Paul not only calls for a like-mindedness to Christ in love and in unity and in humility, but he calls, look at it in particular, for a particular lowliness in verse 3, a lowliness of mind. Because Christ took the low road, and he also esteemed others better than himself. As a matter of fact, he even concerned himself, as the scripture teaches, as you can see in his life, he concerned himself with the things that pertain to mankind. He didn't necessarily look at his own needs, but the needs of others. That's what Philippians 2, 4 says. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now, look, it's not wrong to look at your own needs. I think that's clear in verse number Four right there. It's not wrong to look on your own things or your own needs. The wrongness occurs when that's all you do. He says, but every man also. So in other words, look at your needs. That's fine and okay, but don't stop there. Also consider others around you and their needs but every man also on the things of others all right so you can look after your things you can look after your affairs and hopefully as we've been doing around here uh with operation share and the community and the tornado and those things we are also looking after the needs and the things of other people as well paul says that type of mind that type of mind is the type of mind that i want you to have i want you to emulate the mind of christ look at verse number five verse number five is a link between verses one through four and verses six through eight this is a popular verse. Bishop, I've heard him my whole life. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And we use that and apply that to many things. But in context, the mind it's talking about is that mind that is esteeming others more, that mind that's considering the affairs of your life and others, the mind that's taken the low road of humility, he said, let that mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And he then begins to explain the example of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 6 through 8. Look at Jesus Christ here, if you will. Amen. Here is the list of things, if you will, the downward steps, if we could say it like that, that Jesus Christ took. This was his road of humility. This is one of the means and ways in which he esteemed others better. He, he kind of has the, the John the Baptist mentality at this time. I got to decrease so they can increase almost. Here is Jesus. He was the, in the form of God. Thought it not, not robbery to be equal with God, yet he made no reputation for himself, even in his earthly ministry. We've studied in John. It's not I that do the works, it's my Father. It's not I that do the miracles, the, he, he, no reputation, right? He makes himself no reputation. He takes the form of a servant. I mean, this is God manifesting himself in the flesh. I mean, you think to be in the likeness of mankind, the seed of Abraham would have been enough, right? And he says, no, I'm going to take the lowest form of humanity on the earth. I'm going to take the form of a servant made in the likeness, of course, of man, found in the fashion as man. He, I, after all of this, I mean, you, you, you left your, 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 your place of glory, Right? You're the creator of all things. But you've stepped down and now confined yourself to time and a fleshly body and then became the lowliest, the lowliest of flesh. And then on top of that, you're going to say, 
He humbled himself. It's like, you know, we're already, I'm scraping some dirt right here now. You're going to lower yourself? Yeah. How? Being obedient to death. But not just death. Not just that someone went, you know, drove by on their camel and took him out with their staff. That's a drive-by drive staffing. <laughs> no. But the most cruelest a form of death, most despicable in the eyes of humanity, would be his. The cross. Now, he t- he's in the form of God. And listen, our mind goes, when you think of form, what do you think of? A lot of people think of shape. He's in the form of God. The word form here in the Greek doesn't have anything to do with shape. It's a Greek philosophical term. What it means is this, that Jesus carried in himself the distinct nature and character of God. The distinct character and nature of the Spirit. Amen. And so what this means is this, and this I got this from the, the, the Greek Bible Dictionary. Mr. Weiss said this. He said, Jesus is the perfect expression of a perfect essence. What that means is everything that was expressed in Jesus's life, all of his outward expression, he man, everything that he was, was nothing but an expression of his inmost nature, which was God, right? Because to wit that God was in Christ. Matter of fact, when we read in the Amplified, this Amplified classic version of that first little phrase of verse number six, it says, being in the form of God, possessing the fullness of the attributes which make God God. That's what it speaks of. Everything that made God, God, amen, was expressed in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Living Translation says it like this. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. In other words, he was equal to God. It was not robbery for him to be equal with God, but he wasn't going to use that as leverage in his human life for himself. And he didn't. You look at this throughout the scripture. Amen. Jesus didn't use his deity because he's both God and man. Jesus is God and man. He didn't use his deity for the purpose of personal advantage. In, in the wilderness, whenever he was tempted, right? And the devil says, son of man, will you make these stones bread? He'd been fasting for 40 days. He could have done that. He's God manifested in the flesh. He could have done that. But that would just serve him. Huh? He didn't do that. It was just going to serve his own. He didn't cling to that. He was equal with God, but he didn't cling to it for his own purpose, his own advantage, for his own promotion. You hear me? Amen. We see him in the scripture. He, he takes the loaves and the fishes. He divides and prays over him, feeding the, the thousands, right? Again, for the purpose of the multitudes. The Bible says whenever he was even on the cross, he could have he called 12 legions of angels if he wanted to, to come and deliver him from that. But again, That would have been for him. That would have been for the fleshly man, Christ Jesus. And so he didn't do any of that. So in all of that, though, Jesus Christ never divested himself, amen, of God. He was just as much God as a man as as he was when he was born in Bethlehem's manger. He didn't cease being God, but what Jesus did oftentimes was conceal his God part. He didn't always reveal that. Whenever he caused the dead men to come forth, yeah, it kind of pulled back the curtain. <laughs> Whenever some of the healings took place, yeah, he kind of pulled back the curtain. But for him to make himself of no reputation or literally what would be to empty himself, it's not that Jesus emptied himself of God, but what he did was was concealed certain aspects about God in his earthly life. Why? Because at times he still thirst, as we saw, hungered. Wept at Lazarus' tomb. He was God. He didn't have to worry about hungering or thirsting or any of those things, right? But he's keeping that aspect concealed for a purpose. He's humbling himself in the sight of humanity. Amen. He conceals himself not only through, he, he prays, right? He was baptized of John the Baptist. Huh? Doing those things didn't make him any less God. Shh. But in the eyes of the people, it made him on a ground that they could identify with. This man thirsts. This man is hungry. This man cried. This man is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Amen. 
And all of this essence of God, nature of God, character of God was brought to us in the most, most unimaginable state. A servant. One of their own. A servant. To be more exact, it was a slave. A slave. Who, according to the Greek and Roman world, a slave had no rights. So see, here's what God did for us. He said, I'm going to put myself in a place among humanity. I'm God. But I'm going to put myself in such a place in humanity that I'm a servant of the people. Slave has no rights in essence. Christ, if you will, gave up his glorious rights of heaven for the purpose of becoming a man like you and I. A slave owned no nothing. And we see little glimpses of this in the life of Jesus Christ. He told the disciples, some of them, oh, we're going to follow you. We're going to do this. Do you really want to do this? He said, the son of man hath not where to lay his head. He said, the foxes have their hoes. The birds of the air have their nests. But the son of man, he hath not where to lay his head. For that matter, uh, if you want to go back to my birth, there was no even room in the end for me. It's been a hard life. And think about this. I mean, owning nothing he borrowed a donkey to ride into Jerusalem on the day of triumphal entry. He borrowed an upper room to share the Last Supper with his disciples. He borrowed a tomb for his burial because he was the servant of men. No rights, not owning anything. And yet also in the Greek Roman world, slaves were known to carry the burdens of other people. So no rights. No ownership necessarily of anything, yet we understand in Scripture he bore the burden of our sin. Isaiah 53 and 6 said it like this. The Lord hath laid on him, speaking of Christ Jesus, the iniquity of us all. As his servant, he was bearing a burden that was not his own. Made in the likeness of men, but in all points tempted like we are yet without sin. He was bearing a burden that was not his own. And he was made in the likeness of men. Not just in appearance, but in reality. Look at this. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 14. And I'll read verse 17 as well. Verse 14. Hebrews 2, 14. For as much then as the children. This would really have went real good with like last Sunday night's preaching. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. The children. What's it speaking of? It's speaking of humanity. As humanity are partakers of flesh and blood. He, speaking of Jesus, also himself himself likewise took part of the same he took part of flesh and blood that through death he might destroy him that had power of death that is the devil look at verse 17 wherefore in all things it behooved him him who Jesus it behooved Jesus to be made like unto his brethren or to be made like unto humanity that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest and things pertaining to God for what purpose to make reconciliation for the sins of the people he's going to bring man back into relationship with God because he took on that form of a man the lowliest of form of a servant and could bear our sin that we could not bear Caswell has a little poem I think it's even a hymn he says low within the manger lies it's two, little, two, little, two little verses here that are profound low within a manger lies he who built the starry skies Whew. those are powerful two little sentences but then, someone say, but then. But then, if coming in human form wasn't enough, and if taking the lowliest form of humanity as a servant or slave wasn't enough, he subjected himself to the cruelest and most demeaning of deaths. A cross, crucifix. Crucifix was normally reserved for, for, for slaves, for the lowest of criminals. The crucifix was normally reserved for, for people who were like enemies of the state, you know, treasonous type people. It was for those types of people. And he says, that's the death that I choose for myself. Isaiah said this in Isaiah 53 and 12. Speaking of Christ, he poured out his soul unto death. And that's what all this brought up. That, that's humility. That esteeming others better than himself. Listen, we weren't better, but he esteemed us as though we were. Considering his affairs, but also 
the affairs of humanity? Jesus, he did it. And what took place then, Galatians 3.13, and this is just a phrase of it, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, the scripture says. But he redeemed us from the curse being made a curse for us. Now the mode of death, again, that he chose, the cross, crucifix. He gave himself to it to accomplish what Galatians 3.13 says. He redeemed us from a curse. In order to do so, he became a curse. Because the scripture says even there in Galatians, also in the Old Testament, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Now follow me here. Now Adam and Eve, follow me. Adam and Eve in the garden, the beginning, was cursed. The serpent was cursed on your belly. You're going to go. Woman in childbirth, there's going to be pain. Man, the ground is going to be cursed in the sweat of your brow. All of these things are going to come about. Cursed from the beginning. Listen to me. Cursed in the beginning because of their obedience unto a tree of knowledge and good and evil that they ate and partook of. Follow me here for a moment. Their obedience unto death because what was the word that was spoken to them in Genesis 2.16? Christ told Adam, he said, in the day that thou eatest thereof, this tree knowledge of good and evil, and the day that you eat of it, thou shalt surely die. So they knew when they ate of it, in essence, they were being obedient unto death. Their obedience was going to bring about, for sure, spiritual death, and ultimately physical death, because now there's going to be a termination to the years of man's life upon the earth. Death. Their obedience unto death brought the curse. But in Philippians, the Bible says he was obedient. Look at it in verse number eight. And being found in the fashion of man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. So they were obedient unto death of a tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of knowledge and good and evil, which brought a curse, but Christ was obedient unto death at a different tree, Woo! which didn't curse, which made him a curse. Thus, as Galatians could say, he redeemed us from the curse because he was made a curse for us. So where Adam and Eve were obedient to the death of one tree in the garden, Christ was obedient to the death of another tree on Calvary and by virtue of doing so, redeemed mankind. Woo! He, listen, someone say, Jesus humbled himself. Someone catch that today. Jesus humbled himself. What I'm telling you this morning, I feel the Holy Ghost coming on me right now. What I'm telling you today is that Rome didn't do it. What I'm telling you today is Pilate didn't do it. The Jews didn't do it. Judas didn't do it. The guards didn't do it. The soldiers didn't do it. But he did it for us. He esteemed himself, others better than himself. He humbled himself. Man didn't do it. The hierarchy of society do it. The scribes and the fed. No, he did it. Hallelujah. Woo. Isaiah 53 and 7 says, He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Look, no strife, no vainglory. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Reemphasize. Verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. Somebody else's burden. And he made his grave with the wicked. He made his grave with the wicked. That's on the tree, his death but with the rich in his death because Joseph of Arimathea was a man of resources and the tomb he was brought in was among the elite. 
So he died with the wicked. The grave was made bare, but he was buried with the rich. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. They couldn't lay a finger on him. How could this happen then? Because he esteemed us better than himself. He looked not just on his things, but the things of others. And Paul says, you'll fulfill my joy. You'll make it complete if you can try and even endeavor to follow that type of pattern in your own lives for each other. Because what was done supposedly to him was permitted by him, even his obedience unto death. Right? He gave up his life. He had power to give it up and take it up. Right? That's the word. And just to pull, just push that nail just a little further, Ralph Martin said it like this, and I want to elaborate here on this a little bit. He said, his, speaking of Jesus, his obedience is a sure token of his deity or him being God. It's a sure token of his deity and authority for only, listen to this, only a divine being can accept death as obedience. For ordinary men, it's a necessity. What that means is this. The Bible says it's appointed man once to die. We all have that somewhere on the schedule. It's a necessity for us. It's a part of life for us. But for him, and you see this in the life of Jesus Christ, right? You have the flesh and the spirit. Spirit and the flesh. You have the will of the spirit and the will of the flesh. We find that in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is praying as a man in the flesh to the spirit. Father, if it be your will, let not this cup, let it pass. But not my will. What's he talking about? In his flesh. The flesh's will. Not the flesh's will be done. But Father, your spirit's will. Two wills. The will of the flesh and the will of the spirit. Listen to me. The flesh had no choice. Flesh is destined to die. I'm sorry. You can kick and scream all you want to. When you leave this world, you don't have an option. Flesh has no choice. So, someone say amen. So, that being the case, when we consider Jesus Christ and him dying on the cross, his death, of course, wasn't forced by the Spirit because he's, he's both God and man. Spirit and flesh, the will of the flesh and the will of the spirit is there. If he wanted to, to his own advantage, could have called those angels, got me off of this thing. No, 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 no. That's how we can see in scripture that since the spirit didn't force him to die, then it was rather than obedience, his flesh's obedience to the spirit to say that he was obedient unto death. Because according to the flesh, he was going to die. And he, oh, someone say, someone say glory. And it was the Spirit's will for him to die. So he was obedient unto death. Flesh don't have that choice. And so if a choice wasn't involved, we couldn't have called it obedience. Say, well, brother, we're here at the graveside of Brother Malone today. He lived a good life. He obeyed death. He didn't do nothing. His will didn't have nothing to do with that. He died because he's flesh. He's going to die. But Christ didn't have to. He didn't even have to be destined to without his spiritual will being given into. You know what he did? He said, I choose. I obey the will of the Spirit, even to death. Why? Because this is the ultimate way that I can esteem them. In their sin, in, in their things that they've committed, how I can esteem them better than me so that what I should get, they'll get. I know this is maybe a little deep waters here this morning, but it's important, amen, to realize all this. So we have this big hum humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it doesn't stop there. It's like the boomerang effect of humility. 
Everybody doing okay? All right. Hebrews 2, verses 9 through 11, look at this. Even to the death of the cross, verse 9, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, wait a minute, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is, look what? That Jesus Christ is what? Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Look at this. Here is the delight of this whole panning out of things through the, the demotion, through the uh, humility of the Lord Jesus Christ. He made himself of no reputation. He took on the form of a servant. He humbled himself. He was obedient to a cursed death. Yet the Bible says God highly exalted him and gave him a name above every name. Now, there's a principle here that's being worked out that's found in the Gospels, that's found in one of the parables of the wedding feast. You can find it in Luke 14, the whole parable is verses 7 through 11. And the parable is this, is that whenever you're invited to a wedding feast, they say, do not sit in the high room. Do not go in and sit in the high room or the high seat, as they would call it, but take the lower seat. Because it would be shameful for you to go in and sit at the high seat and for the host to come in and say, well, we really got that for so-and-so. You need to take a lower seat. That would be shameful. Said, But it would be the admiration of all the people. Amen. And even the best benefit of you if you went and took the low seat. And then the host said, hey, I want you to come up here. And he bid you up higher to a higher seat to sit at. And the verse that speaks in Scripture is Luke 14, verse 11. For whosoever shall exalt himself shall be made abased... And he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Because it's shameful for the person to go from take the high and then be taken down to the low. But it's the admiration and praise, if you will, to be taken from the low and exalted to the high. Jesus was at the high, but he purposefully chose the low. And God says, since you took the low seat, I'm going to bid you up higher and exalt you higher, give you a name that's a... It's, amen. It, there's, there's a place that we commonly go. It's a pretty sizable church. We have visited there several times. And usually, as the custom is, I'm asked to sit on the platform. Okay? And anytime I go, I don't go straight to the platform. I sit out in the audience. And sometimes if they catch me or see me in sight, they'll send a servant, or not a servant, but an usher. I've been talking about servants. And they'll come ask me to come to the platform. And, and, and I wasn't doing that to do anything, but just trying to be mindful that I might not always be wanted on the platform. Until finally one time they told me, anytime you're here, come to the platform. So then I did, but not until then. Because you imagine, listen, you imagine going to the platform and then same usher comes up and says, Brother McGee, we're so glad to have you today, but would you mind to go take a seat in the audience? I'm just saying. You understand what I'm... So you take the road of humility. Regardless how much you think you may be important. Because there's more admiration to being called up higher than there is to be called to take a step down. He said, I created all things. I don't need you. I can create another world. But he took the path of humility. And in doing so, he was bid to go up higher. Look, Luke 14 and verse number 10, Brother Zach. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, friend, go up higher. Then shalt thou have worship. Now, that's an interesting word there, worship, praise, worship. If I may, I want to connect that in our, our scripture of Philippians to the bowed knee. He said, I'm going to exalt you higher than any other. Give you a name above all name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee shall. Went from the low, obedient to death, to a place of exaltation that every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess. Things in heaven, things in earth, and things below the earth. That Jesus Christ is you humbled yourself. 
Hold on. You didn't just become man. You became the servant of men. But now there's every tongue, heaven, earth, and below that's saying, your Lord, that means master. You went from servant. What? You went from servant to master. Why? Because you walked the road of humility. Hallelujah. And the Bible says, when every, when every tongue confesses that Jesus is the Lord, it says in verse 11, to the glory of God the Father. Whenever they speak of Jesus, that man who was in flesh, when they, when they give him all that adoration, you know what it does? It gives glory unto the Father. It gives glory to the Spirit. Glory to the thing, the will of the thing that he subjected himself to. Because it's the one that said, you should die. And he said, not mine, but your will. That just gives glory unto the Lord. And when we are like-minded, as Paul wants the Philippians to be like-minded, whenever we show those type of things of one accord and unity and love and consolation and fellowship, all those things among us, you know who gets the glory? The Lord. The Lord. Because someone's going to say, there is no way that those people could be like that among themselves with one another if it wasn't for the Lord. Amen. Stand with me today. So he esteemed us better by being a servant among us. He looked in our things whenever he bore our sins and died our death. I've said this sometimes with different sermons or different times. In essence, God became what he was not, meaning man, so that we might become what he was. Because the Bible says in John, 1 John, it said, It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he doth appear, we shall be like. He became what he wasn't so that we could become what he is. So Pastor Paul, and I'm talking myself, I'm talking about the Philippian Paul. Pastor Paul says that the Philippians would complete and fulfill his joy if they just endeavor to be Christ-minded. Esteem others better than yourself and look on not just your affairs, but the affairs of others. If you can just try, endeavor, and accomplish those two things, you'll be tracking with the pattern of the life of Christ. Christ-minded. Hallelujah. We bow our heads. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.